Our scripture this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 30, the whole chapter. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my family, or my father's clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meholah. Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king is pleased with you, and his attendants all like you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. 
So before the allotted time elapsed, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented the full number to the king so that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David's, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for that reading, Daniel. I, I found that really dramatic and riveting, so thank you for that. Um, now, earlier this year, I listened to a, a few episodes of a podcast about the rise and fall of a notable church. Uh, over the years, I've read and listened to a number of uh, stories about church leaders and their moral failings, which can be very sad. And I'll think, it's no wonder that so many of my contemporaries uh, have left the church. I, I have to catch myself from feeling self-righteous in these moments. Um, and, and usually what helps me is to think about the spiritual journey of these pastors. When I catch myself thinking, wow, their career is over, and either poor them or good riddance, I remember that removing a pastor from office is at least supposed to be a form of church discipline. Uh, it's meant to be redemptive, restorative. It, it's not merely punitive. There's a greater purpose in it than retributive justice. It's actually a pastoral act that, that holds their current job up next to their eternal soul and says their soul is more valuable. Church discipline isn't supposed to protect a person from, from all pain. Being removed from office is painful, but church discipline is supposed to protect a person from the would-be consequences of an even greater pain should they be left to continue. Church discipline is also meant to protect the church, the congregation. Pastors are removed from office when it isn't safe for them to continue being a pastor right now. Maybe they've defrauded the church. Maybe they've engaged in controlling and manipulative relationships. Maybe they've committed crimes that require a judge and a jury uh, outside of the walls of the church. They are spiritually lost, and they need a pastor to help restore them. Church discipline is loving, but it requires a bigger view of the kingdom of God to understand it as loving and, and to practice it lovingly. Now this morning, I want to apply the lens of church discipline to our treatment of Saul and David. Now this is a long passage. Uh, to preach a long passage is to navigate the tension between depth and breadth, uh, between uh, simply surveying the land and excavating one of its mines. Let me say first, when taken as a whole, something, something political is happening here that is significant to the history of Israel. It's significant to the story of David our man after God's own heart, who would be king. Saul is grasping onto power. Several chapters earlier, and, and twice now, his line has been declared rejected by God because of his disobedience. Samuel 
acting like a church, removing a pastor from office, tells Saul that someone will replace him. And Saul is afraid and jealous of David, not accepting the cost of his actions. While Saul doesn't know it, um, I wonder if he suspects David uh, he, as that person that Samuel prophesied about, as the one who would replace him. And David is growing in power. Coming up from a lowly shepherd boy, the youngest of his brothers, David is now making a name for himself. He's advancing in military rank. I mean, his name is growing in renown. And he even marries the king's daughter in this passage. David has been chosen by God as the next king of Israel, selected by Samuel in a private setting. And finally, though we will not say more of him in this sermon because he does feature later in our series, Jonathan recognizes that there's a power shift. Israel's throne is passing to a new house. And at the beginning of this passage, Jonathan, Saul's son, and the crown prince symbolically hands over his place to David with, with the royal and the military accoutrements. Now, if we're surveying the land of this text, we might spend some time focusing on these foreshadowing moments. But alas, we will not be uh, surveying this text. We will be instead excavating one of its mines, the mine of Saul's spiritual development. We'll be looking at, at the spiritual life of Saul. So let's make our way to that mine, but first we have to drive there. So, so let's hop in the caravan and make our way through this passage. I want you to notice what textual land, the textual landscape shows us about Saul. If David is one after God's own heart, if he is like God, then what is Saul like? What with his growing control over David's life? As we start on the road, what we notice is that is this image of, of David and Saul after they've just met each other. Right after defeating Goliath, David does not return home. In verse 2 we read, From that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. I mean, it almost sounds like he doesn't have an option. Saul did not let him return home to his family. There's some control there. David stayed and he devoted himself to public service. He became a person of rank in the military. Here you see him being pinned the Congressional Medal of Honor after what he did with Goliath. But this doesn't stop Saul's growing control over David's life. We see it in verse 9. From that day on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And why did he keep an eye on David? This passage tells us rage and fear. I mean, after David's success in battle uh, with Goliath, the women chanted in celebration for their husbands and sons returning home, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now maybe I have a little bit more distance from it than Saul did, but this sounds like Hebrew parallelism to me. This sounds like a, a poetry. It's not, the point isn't to diminish Saul's achievements by crediting David with something greater. The point is that they share in their victory. Consequently, the chant elevates David. Um, as one like Saul. But Saul becomes angry and jealous. We see him stewing in anger in verse 8. 
They have credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? That rage intensifies the next day, right? Where we read, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Saul had a spear in his hand and hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. I mean, Saul sought the ultimate form of control over David. His death. And so we see rage there, but there's also fear. In verse 12, we read, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. And in verse 15, we read, when Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid of him. Now, if control over David's life was his aim, Saul was backed into a corner. In chapter 14, the people had already challenged Saul, his military authority, when they refused his order to kill his son Jonathan for eating honey against his command on the day of battle. The people, the military leaders, had some resistance. And they also have, had grown to love David. David was the hero of Israel, having single-handedly slayed Goliath. Verse 16 puts it this way. All Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. I mean, a king at that time was largely a military figure. Um, and Saul was a commander who had been challenged before. Would he even have the support to bring David down without making him a martyr and dividing the people's loyalty further? I don't think he would have. So Saul sets off scheming to control David's life through a more elaborate plan. If first, an attentive eye was not enough to control this kid. If second, I couldn't bring him down with my own spear. Well, then third, I have to throw him into battle. It's the same tactic David himself uses later with Uriah. In verse 17, we hear Saul's inner monologue. Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. I mean, in order to lure him into dangerous battle scenes, more dangerous than regular battles, he, he, on two separate occasions, offers his daughters in marriage. In verse 17, Saul offers his first daughter, but David refuses. It seems out of a place of humility. And when that scheme doesn't work, David offers his second daughter for the mere dowry of only 100 Philistine foreskins. Talk about romance, right? When David not only presents this dowry, but exceeds it, Saul agrees to the marriage. So he's angry and he's afraid, but Saul's control over David's life, even his efforts to end David's life, are thwarted at each turn. Our key verse for this whole passage is, is verse 12, right? Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. Saul's is a sad story. His life empties as he seeks to protect his throne and legacy. He's one whom God promises the world to, only to have it taken from him. You are Israel's king, but wait, you didn't do what I asked. You didn't wait for Samuel to sacrifice to the Lord. After a stunt like that, Saul, not anymore. I know I'm tempted to pity Saul, And that's all the time we have in this caravan. We've arrived at the mine, so let's get out of the car 
and look at this mine of, of Saul's spiritual life. I mean, to be clear, God is the factor that makes something spiritual, our awareness of him in our daily life, his story of creation-wide redemption that we enter into with our lives. So what can we say about Saul's spiritual life? The mine of Saul's spiritual life is a dark mine. It's poorly excavated. It's prematurely abandoned. It's not running deep. I mean, maybe you notice this, but God isn't mentioned in our text, except for the two occasions where Saul feels betrayed by God. Two occasions, Saul is brought to a recognition that God is with David and not with him. This is in verse 12 and verse 28. Saul feels alone in the task of reigning and feels that the Lord has, has retreated from the scene. Saul responds to David's favor with God by becoming David's enemy. For the rest of his days, we read that in verse 29. I mean, the larger context of 1 Samuel helps us to, to apply the lens of church discipline to, say, to Saul's life, which I think can be clarifying. To my mind, it shows how Saul is running from God and God's hand of correction in his life. We know that Samuel had told Saul that his line as a king, uh, as the king of Israel, would end. His line would end. This was the consequence for his action. But, like church discipline, such a consequence was also the mercy of God in his life. The question I want you to consider, before we go any further, could Saul have accepted God's discipline as an act of God's love and mercy in his life? And what, what does it mean to accept God's discipline like you would accept the discipline from a loving father. Now, I want to introduce you to two principles that I think help us to answer this question. The first is formation, and the second is reformation or reformation. The formation principle in Scripture is, is that we become like, we, what, like what we worship. I mean, our series, After God's Own Heart, is a series about the life of David who becomes like what he worships. Scripture calls David one after God's own heart, meaning he is like God, which according to the formation principle shows us that the source of, God's, uh, of David's formation was God. I assume that from David, uh, his strong desire to build the temple during his lifetime, his longing in Psalm 23 to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that he was formed in public and private worship. Now, I wonder how Saul was being formed. Scripture does reference Saul engaging in spiritual practice, practices, but we know that, that some of them were, were only hollow view, acts for, for public viewing. Perhaps this is speculative, but maybe Saul's spiritual roots weren't very deep. And that's my theory. The other side of my theory is explained not by the formation principle, but the, the reformation principle. When we are after God's own heart, his discipline draws us closer to him and makes us more like him. Many times in our lives, we will receive correction. Uh, sometimes parents are the correction in, in young children's lives. Sometimes it's a boss at work. Sometimes it's HR. Sometimes it's the voice of people in your small group telling you, Kyle, stop spreading yourself so thin. How we respond to that correction makes a difference. When God disciplines us, it's an opportunity 
for self-reflection, for, for repentance even. It's an opportunity to experience the mercy of God in our lives, to see once again our need for a Savior and God's provision of a Savior for us in Christ as he reforms us. What should be evident from these formation and reformation principles is that God takes an interest in our hearts. He cares about the development of our characters. God disciplines Saul not merely as an act of retributive justice, but as an act of restorative justice, of formation and reformation. God's not a pragmatist. He isn't simply looking for someone to fill a position, to occupy a throne. God isn't merely looking for someone to occupy a pulpit, to teach children's lessons downstairs, to bake cookies after the service, to manage the sanctuary soundboard. God is our Father in heaven who is teaching us his ways, as the psalmist says, so that we may walk in his truth. I wonder if the instinct to, to pity Saul comes from an overestimation of the value of one's position within the greater reality of the kingdom. Surely our position in life isn't the only sign of God's favor. Why when, when, why when we read this passage of Saul being disciplined by God, are we inclined to read more into the text? Almost like the figure of Macbeth. We want to read God's curse on his house, but we don't actually get that from this text. In the same way, I wonder if we can be inclined to infer from our life circumstances evident, uh, circumstances, um, let me say that again. I wonder if we can be inclined to infer from our own life our circumstances as evidence of our status with God. We compare ourselves to our neighbors, to those in the pews next to us, to Christians holding positions of power and influence. But does the loss of status when we, we have been charged and found guilty mean that we've lost status with God? No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to. But it certainly can expose our idols, push us to repentance, so that we can be reformed in the process. I mean, the big idea of this sermon is that we, when we live lives after God's own heart, his discipline in, in our lives actually draws us closer to him and makes us more like him. And we connect this to Saul's life as a negative example. After God does bring judgment and correction and discipline into his life, it doesn't lead to repentance. It doesn't result in humility and turning. I mean, he is more like Denethor, the steward of, of Gondor, both unwilling to light the beacons and cry out for help, and then feeling abandoned when help doesn't come. His control over David's life is his way of hiding from the face of God. He only felt abandoned by God because he refused to humble himself and repent and turn to God and say he was sorry. And hiding from God doesn't... Uh, it doesn't lead to a recognition of God's grace. Hiding from God doesn't lead us to that recognition. Um, it would have taken real spiritual maturity for Paul to believe that his pronounced dethronement was for his salvation. I mean, those, those, those who have been saved by God know that they've been saved from a destruction of their own making. Now, what I don't want to do in this passage is to minimize the reality of pain for Saul. I mean, God means to grow us through his discipline. It's not simply to cause us to avoid pain, but it's to, to, so that that discipline can, can help us 
uh, to avoid an even greater pain so that that would be redemptive in our lives. Gratitude or resentment are the two basic responses to loss and pain that we suffer in our life as a result of our own sin. Drawing close to God means not growing resentful and seeing the price of restoration as lower than the cost of remaining in sin. I mean, in the life of a pastor, sometimes when sin is exposed, it's a wake-up call that one does not have the depth of relationship with God to sustain them in ministry. They need to take a step back. Otherwise, if they continue forward, it's a path towards self-destruction and congregational destruction. <laughs> I mean, that's something worth being grateful for, although it might take years to get there. Grace, though costly, is a bargain. The spiritual discipline here is the practice of coming before God and letting him define our story, of placing our smaller stories within the context of, of what he's doing, the larger story. So what would it have meant for Saul to accept God's discipline, like the discipline of a loving father? It would have meant that he would have started to see God's wisdom in it, that we'd, he would have accepted the rebuke and he would have turned. But instead... Saul departs from being a king that honors and reveres God to being a king that acts out of fear and jealousy and self-interest. Saul's demise is of his own making, not God's. His life empties as, as he sought to protect the throne and the legacy that God had already given to someone else. And importantly, we draw, draw from that last principle of church discipline. Israel was not safe to subject herself to such a king. David, on the other hand, lived in service to Saul. His refrain was like John the Baptist. He must become greater, I must become less. And that's what qualifies David as a king that is safe to worship or to, to, to serve. David's life models the humble service that actually qualifies him as a worthy king. He looks like Jesus. Jesus, let's not forget, emptied himself. That term, kenosis, David, being one after God's own heart, reflects Jesus' humility rather than jealousy, which is all we get from Saul in this passage. Now, when we live after God's own heart, God's discipline draws us closer to him, and it makes us more like him. So I want to extend an invitation to you to consider times in your life that he's used people to call you to repentance. The heart behind rebuke is a parent's love. So when someone challenges you to develop a prayer life and not just the kind of prayer life where you fall asleep praying. It's not punitive. Uh, it's, it's meant to challenge you to experience a reality that's deeper and more sustaining. When someone challenges you to surrender control and fear, it's so that you can experience dependence, a grace that holds you. When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and pushes you to confess that sin to one another and not just keep it a secret, as James tells us, it is to experience healing. Yes, yes, sometimes there are consequences for actions. I mean, sometimes your life will not remain the same, and the church might set up accountability for you. Maybe you'll need to keep your laptop at work so that you aren't cons consumed during family time and, and Sabbath checking your, the health of your mutual funds. Maybe if you are struggling with unforgiveness, you will need to work towards reconciliation or at least forgiveness. Idols prevent us from experiencing God's kingdom and his reign in our lives. 
And we're all called to that process of character reformation. Here's the big idea. When we live after God's own heart, his discipline draws us closer to him and makes us want to be more like him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the examples you give us in Scripture and, and even the negative examples um, that, that warn us of, of, of the cost of, of staying far from you and, and hiding ourselves from you, um, that, that warn us of the, uh, the consequences of, of not accepting your limits or your, uh, your accountability or accepting the, the, the people in our lives and the words that they speak into our lives. Um, I, I pray that you would um, help us, um, help us to, to love discipline. And I pray that you would challenge us to both accept and receive discipline in the loving manner that it is intended. In Christ's name, amen.